An Al Jazeera investigation has revealed accusations of dirty tricks and manipulation within the UK's opposition Labour Party. A trove of internal documents, emails and social media messages show how unelected officials undermined former leader Jeremy Corbyn and anyone who supported him. Can Labour heal its internal divisions? And with British politics in turmoil, could the allegations hurt the party's chances of returning to power? I'm Imran Khan, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests in London, Alex Nunns, a former speechwriter for Jeremy Corbyn in Glasgow, John Curtis, professor of politics at the University of Strathclyde, and also in London, Jonathan Liss, political commentator and deputy director of the think tank British Influence. Welcome to the programme. I'd like to begin in London with Alex Nunns uh, first. Alex, you're actually in this documentary, you've, so you've now finally seen all of it. It must be bittersweet. On the one hand, vindication that you were right, but on the other hand, actually, disappointment that it got to this stage. Uh, well, certainly, um, as people who worked for Jeremy Corbyn or even people who were just supportive of him and part of his movement, we knew all along that this, this kind of internal sabotage was happening and that essentially what, what was occurring was a civil war within the Labour Party where the existing established party establishment, the staff and the MPs and so on, were working as hard as they could to thwart the chances of the left wing in the form of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership to, to make its case to the electorate and to advance. And so, so yes, we all know it, but, but in Britain especially, there's been this um, one-sided media coverage of this situation where everything was blamed on the left and, and the right were never criticised. So in, I, you're right, it's bittersweet in the sense that finally um, some light is being shone on, on what actually happened. Jonathan Liss, uh, also in London, um, it must be disappointing for you as well. But, I mean, this, is this just internal workings of the Labour Party that have just been laid bare, or is it illegal? That's a good question. Obviously, the Labour Party cannot be separated from its internal mechanisms. And uh, there's a long history in the Labour Party of of a kind of civil war between the left and the right, where each faction is trying to wrest control of the party. Um, so yes, it's disappointing and it doesn't bode well for uh, potential future governance. But I suppose the, the key point is that divided parties don't win elections. And it doesn't make any sense for the party to be fighting uh, a battle against the left now. Uh, just as you know, just as the the right party was fighting the left, while the left was actually in in power in the Labour Party, and I think that the, really the leadership has to to look at this because the public is not going to be attracted by a party which is focusing more on kind of purging one wing of itself than in actually speaking to the country. Um, I'm going to bring in uh, bring back Alex here, Alex uh, in London as well, Alex. Um... You've heard there that actually this needs to be looked at by the leadership. We've been actually speaking to members of my team and I, of members of the Labour Party all day to try and get their sense of this. And the overwhelming sense is just as we were about to become electable, just as things were turning a corner, we're back here. But the point is, this didn't happen overnight. This is systemic within the Labour Party. These documents go back to 1998. There's always been a problem. Well, that's true to an extent, but, but the problem has certainly intensified. It intensified when Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party. That's when, um, for the right of the Labour Party, the left became an existential threat to its kind of self-image rather than just an annoying, you know, relative that they had to put up with. So, so it definitely became more intense in the Corbyn period. But I think it's wrong to just say 
why can't you leave this all behind you? Why is there still this infighting? Because it's really a continuation of the same project that's happening now. Um, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership was sabotaged internally, and then the same people in, in some instances, but certainly the same faction, are essentially the people who surround Keir Starmer, who run the Labour Party right now. And what they've done now that they've got into a position of power is they've decided to, as Jonathan just said, launch an all-out purge of the left and try and, you know, they've suspend, they suspended the former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, they've expelled plenty of members on really dubious grounds. And this just goes on and on and on, and it seems to be the leadership's only um, kind of reflex is to attack its left wing in a kind of a really bad pastiche of, of the Tony Blair years. So, so this is, it is a problem for Starmer in the sense that he's not going to have a united party if he carries on down that track. John Curtis in Glasgow, uh, you've heard what both our guests have had to say about this documentary, about the allegations uh, within the documentary. But do ordinary people care? You're a professor of politics, you're a pollster. Do ordinary people care about this kind of internal fighting? For the most part, no, but uh, it's certainly correct to say that um, people are less likely to vote for parties that are internally divided. And in a sense, one of the advantages that Labour Party has at the moment is that it's pretty clear that the Conservatives are divided. That is the perception that the public have of them. Um, it was something that was, in the end, particularly fueled by Partygate in the way, in the end, Boris Johnson's government effectively collapsed at the beginning of July uh, this year. Um, as compared with that, uh, the current arguments about the past inside the Labour Party and the way in which Jeremy Corbyn was treated certainly will not have the same degree of resonance for voters, um, not least, I'm afraid, because whatever his merits, although Jeremy Corbyn certainly did very well in the 2017 general election, in the end, um, he wasn't able to persuade uh, the electorate that he was somebody that they wanted to see him as prime minister. And to that extent, at least, uh, the arguments about Jeremy Corbyn are, I'm afraid, to some degree, yesterday's news, as far as most of the public are concerned. But it does have an effect. I want to bring in Jonathan uh, Liss here. It does have an effect on people's perceptions, clearly, of the Labour Party. More importantly, though, it is a problem for Keir Starmer, who now has to publicly, and the conference is on Sunday, he's got to publicly address all of this and try and unite his party. Can he do that? I'm not sure that he does have to address it, to be honest. Um, I mean, obviously, journalists have to ask him about it, and maybe some will. But I think that he will steer the conversation very rapidly away from it. And, you know, as much as John was saying a second ago, to say this is yesterday's news and to point out that the ultimate verdict on Jeremy Corbyn, sadly, was passed by the British people in 2019. Obviously, as we were saying, it wasn't helped um, by the sort of factions in the Labour Party, and it wasn't helped by the internal sabotage um, that looks uh, to have taken place. But the British people did not want Jeremy Corbyn, fundamentally. They didn't want what the Labour Party was offering um, for a number of reasons in 2019. And I suppose Starmer will, will make that point and steer it very rapidly away from that to look at the current dividing lines. And I think the, the point is that his job has actually become a lot easier in the last couple of weeks, because when Johnson was prime minister, and Johnson was obviously very unpopular at the end, but Starmer's main lines of attack against Johnson were first of all on competence and then on character. 
But now Truss has become Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and has completely transformed the Tory party agenda to make far more, far clearer lines, dividing lines between the Tories and Labour, such, you know, similar in a sense, you know, because of the Labour Party and Tory party both now move to the right. So we have a similar kind of gap between the two parties that we had uh, a few years ago. And that will make it far easier for Starmer because now he has a political dividing line and he can talk much more about policies. And even though Labour is to the right now, it's still much further to the left than the Tory party under Liz Truss. I think the public will be more prepared to forgive him for that. I think actually, uh, Alex, uh, in London as well, um, Jonathan Liss has actually put out a strategy, probably unintentionally, but it's a quite a decent strategy. Let's just avoid that. Let's focus on the Tory party. Let's forget any internal Labour Party workings, but there are going to be a lot of angry Labour Party members, certainly ones we've spoken to, who want a clean house. They want reform. That's going to have an impact. Well, there will be. Yeah, there will be, but I think at the conference they'll probably keep it off the agenda if they can. I mean, I agree that publicly the Labour Party will say, well, this is all in the past and let's move forward and so on and so forth. Um, but actually it does still present practical problems for Keir Starmer going forwards. I also agree that the Conservatives are trying to make it as easy as possible for Starmer by moving by basically trying to rerun, you know, Thatcherism from the 80s, which gives Labour a lot of space. But, but the trouble for Starmer practically is that a lot of the Labour Party membership are disaffected. A third of party members have left under Starmer, have resigned their membership or been kicked out. Um, those tend to be the people who will go around and, and deliver leaflets and knock on doors and all that kind of thing. The party's really in a difficult financial situation because it's lost membership money from all these ex-members, also because it's got a kind of tetchy relationship with the trade unions who are traditionally the biggest funders of Labour, but who are basically saying, you know, we're, we're going to withheld our, our money. And there aren't the big rich donors coming back in to fund the party that there were in, in the Tony Blair era. So it's not just a political problem for Starmer, where I agree that the Conservatives have made it much easier for him than it would otherwise have been if Boris Johnson had been um, in place and still successful as he was previously. But it's also a practical problem about the running of the party and the makeup of the party and the, the morale of the party. Uh, John Curtis, it seems to me that the natural order of things in Britain is either centre-right or centre-left. That's kind of where we've been mostly, although there aren't extremes of that when under Thatcherism, as we just mentioned, and perhaps now even with Liz Truss. But Jeremy Corbyn was always going to be unelectable. So people working within his own party to actually try and bring him down were actually trying to do the party a favour. That's one spin, right? Well, that certainly will be the view of those who were engaged in trying to bring him down. Although I think in truth, you know, we should remember that, I mean, it's that quite remarkably. Um, Jeremy Corbyn in the 2017 election is probably the first party leader that I'm aware of, who having been unpopular with the public, actually managed to considerably improve his popularity during uh, that election. His problem, of course, in the end is that what he wasn't able to do was to provide his party with adequately clear direction on the issue of Brexit in the 2019 general election. In contrast, Boris Johnson did provide his party with a very clear direction on that issue. And therefore, as a result, the limitations of Jeremy Corbyn's abilities as a leader uh, were exemplified. And also because, to some degree, some of the things that made some traditional Labour voters unhappy about uh, the Labour Party and about Jeremy Corbyn tied in with their rather more socially conservative views that, le le that led them to vote, led them to vote leave. So, you know, to that extent, at least, 
um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn to some degree had the difficulty of being uh, party leader at a particularly uh, uh, difficult time. But again, equally now, what one should bear in mind, it's worth bearing in mind, this will be the first Labour Party conference since 2017, since Jeremy Corbyn did relatively well in the 2017 election. The Labour Party has come together for its annual conference when it's actually been ahead in the opinion polls. And there's one thing that we do know about party leadership is that party leaders tend to be relatively strong when their parties are doing well in the poll and tend to be in the polls and do and tend to be relatively weak when the uh, converse is true. So probably, uh, you know, despite all the matterings about Secure Starmer, despite the fact that it's perfectly clear, while he is somebody whom the public can imagine as prime minister, they don't necessarily have enthusiasm for in the way that, for example, certainly a section of the election had for Jeremy Corbyn, though not a majority. Um, despite that, because now Labour does enjoy quite a substantial lead, there isn't much sign of a bounce for the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. He will actually, in some senses, have more authority, I suspect, at this conference than he has done at the, the, the previous ones that he's been presiding over as leader. Uh, Jonathan, this is a very interesting point, isn't it? Here you've got a man that people can imagine being Prime Minister, Keir Starmer, but he's also got a party that he's got to bring together somehow. And that is now has to be the focus. All of this comes out. It's going to give people a talking point. This is the next year for him, surely. Uh, this is a distraction that's going to take, it's going to consume the Labour Party and Keir Starmer's leadership for the next year at least. I really don't think it'll be that much of a distraction for the simple reason, as we've already mentioned, that I think the media has moved on, the media which was very hostile to Corbyn anyway, and so uh, might well sort of overlook um, some of the moves that were made against him, um, because yeah, even on the even in more sort of centrist or, or left-wing newspapers, there, there wasn't a great love for Corbyn in the British media, as we know. Um, and I think that the weather, the political weather has changed so much, as we were also just mentioning a second ago, that a lot of the people who are wavering about Labour and saying, well, it's no longer the case that any Labour government is better than any Conservative government, and now, under trust, perhaps being galvanised to kind of come back uh, to the Labour fold just because what trust is is proposing is so radical and, and so... Uh, uncalled for, so so unwanted by the British people. You haven't had any say in it. And I think that that has really made, as Alex was saying, that's really made Starmer's job a lot easier. And it will mean that this kind of disaffection becomes much less of a political issue for him, because a lot of the Labour members who might be furious with him and might also be very resentful about the fact that he broke so many of his leadership pledges in 2020 while he was campaigning to become Labour leader and then kind of ditched almost all of those pledges, they might sort of rally to him because they know that what he is offering is a lot better, not radical, nothing like as progressive as what Corbyn was offering, but much better than anything that could come from Liz Truss. Alex, the bottom line still remains, though, surely, that this was a democratically elected leader that was brought down by unelected people that most have never even heard of. That, that has to make headwaves. Well, I think the key point is, in all of this, is that, the, you know, in this civil war within the Labour Party, one side, Jeremy Corbyn's side, had democratic legitimacy. He was elected with large majorities within the party. The other side were using kind of rearguard actions, bureaucratic manoeuvres behind the scenes to thwart that democratic mandate, even though 
they were literally paid to carry it out. So, so yeah, so this, I, I don't think, I mean, it's very easy in the British context, you know, the British news agenda moves on very quickly. People say, well, that's old news. But th there was something quite profound that happened in the Labour Party between 2015 and 2019, something which is unprecedented, really, which is that an elected leadership was sabotaged from within by its own, by its own side. Um, and obviously there was there were other forces that were acting against the Labour Party. There were, you know, the media were hostile, as we mentioned. And as John said, this was an extremely difficult time with Brexit, which I think is the main reason for the, the 2019 general election result, which was essentially a, a kind of a Brexit election. Um, whereas 2017, you know, Labour did relatively well. Um, so th there were all these other factors, of course. But it's it's a. Uh, it's at the very least a, a fascinating case study of what can happen in a political party when you have this kind of internal sabotage and this attempt to derail the leadership because the leadership is, is considered too left-wing by, by the people who previously ran the party. I mean, John Curtis, this is the stuff of fiction. There was a very famous film called A Very British Coup, which is almost exactly what we're talking about now. It was just run by the British establishment. To see this play out in reality and to see it all laid bare, that must have come as a, as a shock to you, or is this just part and parcel of dirty politics that we all accept? Well, I think, to be honest, um... Maybe Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn should get together and start a club for deposed leaders. Um, at the end of the day, um, leaders who are, end up being regarded by their party or by a significant section of their party as a liability to them are always at risk of being overturned, irrespective of how strong, well they did at a general election, in the case of Boris Johnson's case, or irrespective of how well they did in the leadership election in the case of Jeremy Corbyn. At the end of the day, both gentlemen face the problem vis-a-vis -vis their parties that a significant section of, of their party did not uh, believe that they were an asset. And when that was the case, yes, unsurprisingly, people moved together. I mean, the truth is that's just uh, a part of what politics is about. Party leaders, one of their uh, constant jobs they have to do is to maintain the confidence of their party. If they don't have the comments of the party, they are always potentially vulnerable. Um, Jonathan, this. Um, it's often been said of the Republican Party in the US that it actually should be six different parties because of the internal divisions. We've been talking a lot with all our guests about the idea that this is the hard left versus the hard right. This is the, There were divisions within the, uh, the Labour Party itself. Is it time to actually split the Labour Party? Because this doesn't seem to be doing the Labour Party any favours, to having this internal, almost constant infighting. The bottom line is that the Labour Party is the only vehicle for progressive government in the United Kingdom. Um, that is a result of our electoral system, first past the post, uh, which requires uh, you know, 50% 50, 50 or like not even 50%, a, a, a majority of one in each constituency that has no kind of proportionality to it whatsoever. If you had a proportional representation system, then I agree there would be very good grounds to split the Labour Party into, into sort of different shades of left-wing opinion and then the public could decide which one of those shades it wanted and then you'd have a formal coalition between the different factions to form a new government. That is extremely normal around the world. We don't have that system and until we do, then there is no option but for the Labour Party to group together because if it doesn't, if there's a splintering, a split, and we have seen splits in the Labour Party before, obviously in um, 1981, 
when uh, several um, high-profile MPs split away to form the Social Democratic Party, which then uh, merged with the Liberals. And also, to a lesser extent, in 2019, when some disaffected uh, MPs broke off and formed the Change UK party, which wasn't nearly successful, you have had uh, you have had break up breakups, and that has always benefited the Conservative Party, which has managed to stay extremely united in a mm. very successful right wing force, which doesn't have any rivals on the right. The Labour Party is always going to have rivals on the left, right. such as the Liberal Democrats, depending on where they are at any given time, and the Green Party. So it's always going to be harder for the Labour Party. And particularly now, when the Tories are redrawing the electoral boundaries to make it um, easier for Tory MPs to be elected, that rule will come in before the next election. So the Labour Party really needs to coalesce. And that is why um, Starmer needs to stop purging the right and extend olive branches, because with Without the left and without those activists, as Alex was saying, it's going to be much harder to win the election. Uh, Alex Duns, have you actually spoken to Jeremy Corbyn since all of this came out? Um, well, I haven't spoken to him yesterday or today, but I have spoken to him very recently when we knew it was coming out. Um, so, yes, I don't think it's a great surprise to him. I mean, uh, I worked for Jeremy in the Labour Party um, at the time and you know, this stuff was was known that it was going on. It was just that it was, it was very difficult. It actually wasn't in our interest at the time to expose it because it would have just made the Labour Party look like a hopelessly divided, you know, infighting bunch of, um, you know, uh, rabble, basically. So, so it was never, frustratingly, even though we knew this stuff was happening, it was never in our interest to say, look, what's going on? Um, so now this stuff is coming out. It's... Um, uh, it, it's, it's good to have it, have it finally confirmed. But I do think that something has changed within the Labour Party that makes it different from those other historical examples that um, Jonathan was just talking about, in that there is now, since Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, I think the right of the Labour Party view the left as an existential threat to them. They think that the left is a genuine threat now and they, they want to get rid of us. I think what's happening is that there is a, an attempt to really push the left out for good, to exterminate the left. You know, um, suspending Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader, was a very bold step. It, was, it, it wasn't something they did lightly. And all the other actions have been in keeping with that. And so I think that even though I actually believe that this is detrimental to the Labour Party and damaging, I think those people around Keir Starmer don't care about that. And I think they're going to try and do it anyway. And I do think that it will have long-term consequences for the Labour Party. It may well be that they can beat Liz Truss in a general election and amid a cost of living crisis where everybody's livelihood is, is suffering. I mean, that's very possible. But in the long term, we've got plenty of examples from Europe of social democratic parties that essentially were hollowed out, left without activists, left without a social base, that then collapsed. So I think long term, this is quite worrying for the Labour Party. I want to thank all our guests, uh, Alex Nunns, John Curtis and uh, Jonathan Lisson. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Calvin N., Sarah Khairat, Ben Clark, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Deepak Pushkaran, and the program was edited by Venetia Valilath, Lynn Engwin, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again on Monday.